so, so this morning we're continuing our series called, called Future Church, where we're thinking about some of the, the, the future of uh, the church in general, and also specifically uh, the future um, of, of our church specifically. And this morning I really want to talk about something that I think that we as a church can, can be a, a great um, solution to a problem that uh, a lot of people actually have right now. And part of it is we live in a time that's, that's um, very polarized. People are polarized on, on a lot of different topics. And it's interesting because I think that like, kind of continues to, to happen. Uh, I, I love um, this tweet that I came across this week, which I think describes it uh, pretty well. Question outside of my area of expertise, me loudly. Well, the answer is obvious. Question within my area of expertise, well, it's complicated. Like if you come to me with a question about like, oh, what does the Bible say about, my voice gets a little high, go, oh, well, uh, and like, let, let's, let's talk about it. There's some scriptures, there's some things, you know, some people would be on this side of it. There's some passages that say this though, and we, I, I would like think about it, but ask me a question about something else that I don't really know all that much about. And I go, well, I saw an article and I, I, I did say it to Holiday Inn Express last night. And so like, I'm feeling like that, that it seems like the way that, that it goes. We read one article uh, about some subject and, you know, we were all experts on, um, like spread of disease a few months ago. Now we're experts on international conflict. I mean, there's like all these things we just kind of, I, I read that article or, or I know that. And in reality, so much of life is a little bit more complex than that. And sometimes church doesn't necessarily do a good job of that. I love there's an old Jewish saying, um, two rabbis, three opinions. And I think if you actually get together and actually have conversation and relationship, um, a mentor of mine says the only thing that's holding most churches together is a lack of communication. And that's a little cynical, but I think it's kind of true that if you actually like get to know other people, you'd be like, whoa, I can't believe like you'd be a Christian. I mean, I, I just assumed that every and, and like, but when you actually have relationship, when you have the opportunity to, to get to know each other, there's some friction that happens. There's assumptions that you or I have about certain subjects or certain things that we're like, oh no, everybody must just think exactly like I do about this, and then we're surprised when, when they don't. That gives us an opportunity, I think, as a church to help to be a place where people have like real relationships and conversations and, and differences of. Opinion, America is a social experiment that still really isn't all that old, that is built on hyper-individualism. And think about that. Like, there's some benefits to that. But perhaps you're from a culture, um, or you just know about another place, where it is more about the community than it is the individual. And there's some negatives to that. I've seen in Kanto, there's some things that happen, like when, when like the people, like the, the matriarch or the patriarch has, you know, so much control over how the family, and I understand there's some negatives to, to like that end of the spectrum, but we're on the complete other end, where honestly, we don't really do a good job sometimes caring about like elderly parents or elderly, we don't often give the same sort of respect that other cultures and other places do. And again, I think there's a way to find some, some middle ground because both on extremes uh, can be hard, but we live in a very individualistic culture. There was a man named Alexis de Tocqueville who was from France, and he visited uh, the United States in 1831 and did a whole tour and got to know American culture. And on his reflection, uh, he said this, and again, this is in 1831, 
When he's speaking about the individualistic nature of American society, he said, if left unchecked, it would mean the destruction of humanity. Because people don't have enough care for the community. It's all kind of about the individual and not about like coming together. And we still, I would say, have some of that in us. There was an article in Forbes magazine uh, several years ago, and it tried to determine what are some of the things that, that lead to deep meaning in life. And this article mentioned four things, and this is not a, a Christian article or by a pastor. A, a few close friends, a family, not necessarily like a nuclear family, but people who you could call in the middle of the night when you have a problem, meaningful work, and then a theology or a philosophy. And this was Forbes magazine. They said these are like the four things that lead to the most meaning and happiness in life. And I would argue that we're struggling in the world today with a lot of those things. There's a stat, there was a study by Stanford University that said currently 40% of American adults, so two out of every five, report having zero to one close friends. So if you feel alone at times and you feel like maybe you don't have a friend that you would want to talk to, like just know that you aren't alone, like that is just kind of, the way things are today. And we as a church, I think, have a unique opportunity. We came up with the slogan actually shortly before uh, the pandemic um, during some vision sessions, um, a home in LA. And if you'd like a t-shirt, let me know. I can get you uh, a t-shirt uh, from that. And I think that is something that our community, the community of, of Los Angeles broadly, the communities of Glendale, Pasadena, Burbank, like, that's something that people need. Because in a world where people have zero to one close friend, you come to our church and you're going to have some. From the first Sunday, you come to our church, you'll probably get invited to go hang out somewhere. And I think there are, are benefits to all, all sizes and, and different kinds um, of churches, but we have a unique calling in our city. And again, like there are these things that people need to have meaning in their life. And I, I believe that we can help with a lot of those things. And it takes us working hard. It takes us uh, continuing to be a space that, that, is, that is welcoming and, and inviting people in because there's this unique challenge of being a space where people feel known and loved by the community, but also being welcoming. And that is something that remains a challenge and something that I think we do pretty well, but something we can always uh, continue to have uh, in front of us. But people desperately need a home in LA. And you all, we all are part of that. Because Christianity is about living in relationship. I think of the book of Romans. Some people say that it's Paul's best writing. When I was in grad school, they told us not to preach on the book of Romans because you're not going to understand it until you've been preaching for 15 years. So I'm about 13 years in. So expect the Roman series in like 2025, I guess, or something. So I'd be ready uh, for that uh, at that point. But the book of Romans, Paul lays out these really complex, big ideas about the fall of man and, and what that means for us as followers of Jesus and then how uh, we press forward and what that means for our identity. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he speaks then about, okay, what does that mean? What does the supremacy of Christ mean for the church? And what has that played out? like, and then he starts chapter 12, and he starts with, therefore, 
So I've given you this uh, 11 chapters for you to drink out of this fire hydrant. And now, like this is why I've written all this stuff. This is why this matters. This is why this is important. I don't have the words on the screen behind me, but I just want you to hear Romans chapter 12. Um, It would have been read aloud as as a letter that was circulated amongst uh, the early churches. So therefore, because of all that I've said, all these 11 chapters, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your proper and true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as members of us, just as we have members of one body with many members, these functions do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. I love that idea that we are all individuals, but yet we belong to each other. We have different gifts according to the grace given each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must not be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine, I will avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coal on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so after writing these 11 chapters, then saying, all right, now because of all this, like, therefore, this is what this means. Paul says, it's about living in community. And there are 25 commands in that chapter about how we are supposed to live in community together. And Paul is just saying, it's, it's this and it's that. And it's not just this, but it's also that. Paul is saying in in this unbelievable letter, you can't just do this Christian thing on your own. The idea of forgiveness is really nice when you're like sitting on a mountain somewhere by yourself. But actually forgiving somebody, it takes practice. It takes having somebody to forgive. Someone who maybe annoys you a little bit. Someone whose name and face and story that you know. It's easy to enjoy the ideas of Christianity, but then to actually think about practicing them. Paul is, is saying, like, this, this is how this looks. It's lived out among people. 
One thing that you may not notice if you're reading through the New Testament, almost all of, of the New Testament uh, references where it says you, it is not the individual word you. It actually would be helpful there to have the Texan version of the Bible and say y'all. Because it's almost always y'all. Y'all, even at the beginning of Romans, y'all are a living sacrifice. And oftentimes when we think about faith, it's this like, you know, this personal thing and just like, just say, say a prayer to Jesus alone in a closet. And I'm not saying that there's not power in prayer and like individual things that happen. Totally there is. But it's easy to start to think that it's just this personal relationship with God. And, and Paul is always saying, y'all, y'all, this is worked out with, with y'all. And some of you have certain gifts, and y'all should use them. And some of you have other gifts, and y'all should use those uh, as well. And then, like, these are the things that we're called to do. We're supposed to love each other. And when, when something happens to you that, that hurts you, like, work it out. Like, be in community with each other. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. All of this is lived out in community. And it's lived out in relationship. And I think this is very much built on the ministry of Jesus. Something that I think is, is so striking about Jesus, if you're just reading through the Gospels, maybe for the first time in a while, is how comfortable Jesus is in his own skin. In complex situations, in people, Grant did a great job of talking about just the different ways that society was, was split up in his, his communion, just how comfortable he is being around people and like spending time with people who... The world would have said, oh, man, you're a religious leader. You definitely shouldn't be around like that kind of person. But Jesus is just so comfortable in his own skin. He's called a drunkard and a glutton because he hung out at parties. Was he drinking too much? I don't know. I don't think so. But he was there. And he was in those spaces. And he's just so comfortable. You know. One place I think you see this is in the story of, of Zacchaeus. So in Luke chapter 19, it starts like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And one thing that'll blow your mind as I was studying this passage, the, the he there, because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. It's ambiguous as to whether that's Jesus or Zacchaeus, actually. So Jesus could have been the wee little man. The wee little man was he. It's possible. We, we, we don't know. Uh, but it's possible that it's because Jesus was short that Zacchaeus couldn't see him um, among the crowd. So no matter the reason, Zacchaeus is up in the tree. So he, he runs ahead and climbs in a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus is, is passing through. And there's this tax collector who goes and, and, and climbs up in a tree. He wants to see Jesus, but probably also wants to stay out of the way. 
Because if you're a tax collector, you weren't somebody that anybody wanted to spend time with. If you know anything about uh, the New Testament at all, and uh, if you're likely familiar that tax collectors were, were the worst of the worst, we still don't really like people that collect taxes. But back then, uh, the, in Jewish society in that space, the Romans were uh, in charge, but they said anybody can do anything like as far as you don't like mess with like our rules, basically. And they specifically installed people uh, from that region who uh, could then just do, take care of the taxes. And so someone like Zacchaeus uh, was extraordinarily wealthy because he was able to tax the people um, as much as they wanted to, basically, and it didn't really matter. Some estimates are that people were uh, taxed as much as 80%. And these were people who were living in unbelievable poverty because partly because of tax collectors. And so tax collectors were the worst of the worst because they had turned their back on the Jewish people and had said, we are gonna like go help out Rome and we're uh, making your life extremely miserable. And so that's why tax collectors are considered terrible. And so Jesus knows of Zacchaeus, maybe, or knows his story, knows his heart, and just says, all right, I'm, I'm coming to your house today. And again, how comfortable Jesus is in his own skin. Like, this is something you don't, you don't do that. And if you're somewhat familiar with these stories, it's almost cute. And you're like, oh, that, you know, that makes my heart happy and makes me, makes me feel good. Because that's really great. But what we have to do is think about someone who perhaps is on like the bottom of the moral ladder for us. Who would you think, no, no way. Should go spend time with, with him or, or with her? Imagine Jesus, you know, going to a house to have dinner with a pedophile. Or going to lunch with the police officer who killed George Floyd. But right now, spending time with Vladimir Putin. And that's where it starts to get uncomfortable, right? And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Does, does that mean that you condone everything that he or she has ever said or anything that he's ever done? But that's where Jesus is just so comfortable. He's not. And he knows that Zacchaeus' heart needs to change. And Zacchaeus actually gets up in the midst of this party and he says, look, I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So Jesus knows that he needs to change. And it's not like, oh, dude, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Just, just talk to me in the corner and we'll figure this whole thing out. No, no, no. Jesus says, no, salvation has come to this house. Like this, this man's life has been changed in this moment and then hopefully has changed moving forward. But Jesus is just so comfortable in his own skin and willing to have table fellowship with people who you just, you didn't do that. And table fellowship in, in that time was, was an unbelievable, uh, huge deal, especially for, for Jewish people. Israel had been in Babylon for a while, and while they were there, they didn't have a place to go and worship in the temple. And so the idea was that you don't have a space to go and worship God, so your home and your table becomes the space that you worship God. 
And that sounds like a pretty like, decent idea. That, like, okay, that's pretty great that you should have like this really high standard of holiness, even for like your, your table where you're having breakfast on Monday or having dinner. You know, it's around you. The, the holiness of God is with you in every single moment, but it becomes problematic because a non-Jew can't be around that table then. Someone who had a deformity or had a, a special need. Someone who you would have said is, is a sinner. So again, it starts, I think, with a good impulse that we would you know, pur- purify ourselves and, and be able uh, to have a, a standard of holiness. But it ends up becoming about who's in and who's out. And Jesus just blows this, this whole idea out of the water. There's a New Testament scholar who, who says this, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to concern, consume nourishment. Being welcomed to the table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. And I would argue that it still is today. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal opened the way to reconciliation. Jesus' inclusion of sinners around his table is the most meaningful expression of the redeeming love of God. I've heard it said more simply, Jesus was killed for who he ate with. And I think it's true. Because he was welcoming people around the table who you just simply didn't welcome. And he was having fellowship with people who you just simply didn't have fellowship with. I love how uh, Robert Karras says this. He says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. He says, that's my kind of God right there, right? And this, I believe, is is an invitation for us as a church to be a place where we can fellowship, where we have donut holes on Sunday, which my son woke up at like 6.45 saying, there's donuts today. So we we know the reason why he's excited. But beyond that, as we come out of, out of COVID to be able to, to have a table fellowship and to spend time together in an increasingly lonely world, we have a barbecue next Sunday night. Come and join us. It'll be outdoors at our house. We'd love for you uh, to come and, and join us for that because we are, are creating a new kind of community, a home in LA a place where we get the chance to gather around the table and to be known in a time that is increasingly disconnected. Where again, like two out of four people have zero to one close friend. We get a chance to be in each other's lives and to live out this type of radical community. Because as Paul writes about it in Romans, it isn't just enough to like, oh, well, I kind of understand what it is about Jesus. It's like, no, have them around your table then. Spend time with everybody. And sometimes like you're going to need to forgive and sometimes you're going to be needing to be the one that's forgiven. Because that's what community looks like. It's hard. And it takes work. 
I mentioned that article at the beginning of, of the four things that, that Forbes says are the things that lead to, to meaningful um, parts of our lives. And I would argue that our church can crush three out of four of those things. Meaningful work, a little bit harder perhaps, although uh, my, my wife got her job through a church friend and really like most of your jobs are through like community, am I right? Like, it, it, and like she's still working in that same field kind of because of, of that start. So we can maybe help a little bit with number three. But the other ones, like we can be part of that solution, Right? And together, we can be part. I've said that my favorite part of Sundays, I really, I really enjoy preaching and I really enjoy the worship, but like when, when we say the amen prayer and everybody is just talking the vibrancy that's in this room and just being able to just be, be part of that and to, to feel the, the connection after a time when we haven't been able to do that as much. And we get a chance, I think, to do a really good job with three out of four of those things and help someone with the job every once in a while but we can be part of this. We can live more into the home in LA out of the life and ministry of Jesus who just is always welcoming people around the table. And people that you wouldn't expect. And we get a chance to be that community for each other. For the first time in my ministry, so if you're here for the first time, I'm sorry, but for the first time in my ministry, I'm assigning homework. Um, so Sonia and Charlie are, are passing this out. Hopefully there, there's one uh, for everybody, for at least every family member. So there was an article that I saw actually on the ringer.com, which is a mostly like pop culture sports website, but uh, it is this article um, that I want everybody to read. And you can find the digital version as well. And I actually cut off a little bit just to save paper of it. There's a little bit more uh, information, but the main parts that I wanted to, to show you uh, are, are on that. I wanted to give you like actual paper so you would do it. Um, and again, this is not gonna become a common practice. This is the first time uh, I, I've done it. But uh, this, this article was, was so meaningful to me as I happened to read it uh, on Thursday. I think it was just like a, a spirit-led moment for me because I feel like this really describes what I think our church can do and what our church can be. You don't have to read it right now, but I'd love your, your comments uh, and feedback. But the author basically asked the question, do you know my son? And unfortunately, I he has a terminal cancer. He doesn't know exactly how long he's going to live. And he describes losing his dad at a young age and then actually asks of, of his community, when I see you in heaven one day, are you going to know my son's name? And so it'll make you cry, so maybe do it, do it alone in a room somewhere. But I really think... It's a vision of, of who we can be, and in some ways, who, who we already are. I'm excited to be able to have our, our community groups and, and our um, home groups starting up probably in April. I'm, I'm hoping that the numbers continue to get to that place so, so we can do that. But I have a memory of, of uh, pre-COVID back in the normal times when it felt, it felt more normal to be in that space when we had a community group at our house and our son Carter was probably about four. And as he still loves birds, uh, he loved birds then. And he said, I want to put on a bird show for everybody. 
And some of you guys might have been there. Some of you are nodding your head. And many of you were there for it. And I'll always remember the Williams kids who sat right there on the front row and were super supportive. And Katie actually uh, took a video and posted it and said, same, Carter, same. Like he was doing these, all these dances with the birds. And I hear some, some babies in this room today, which is awesome. And I know for me, this church community has been very meaningful for many reasons, but partly because you all do know my son's name. And we get a chance to be the community of God together and to deeply be known by God and each other. And we get a chance to be a home in LA in a time and space that desperately needs that. So let's be like Jesus, either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming for a meal. Because we have the opportunity to, to be a, a community of God and to represent God's good news in the world in the way that we fellowship and welcome those who are at any part of their spiritual journey. So we're going to close in, in song uh, together. And uh, Nick's going to lead us in, in Christ alone. And I wanted to end with this song because it helps us to, to remember that it is Christ who leads us in this. It is not just an idea, again, that we can have in our heads that forgiveness is good or oh, I really like that Jesus guy. No, it is about then being like the, the body and, and the blood of Jesus in the world. We're never going to do that perfectly, but Romans is 11 chapters. And then Paul says, and therefore, then like live this out in community. Some of y'all have gifts. You need to use them. Some of those other people have gifts. Y'all need to use them. And this takes like forgiveness and, and love and, and understanding the humility that God has called us all to. I hope that all of us recognize the part that we can play in that. Even today, even this morning, because of who God has called us to be. So again, please take my homework assignment seriously. I will also email out the link, but I hope that you read it and spend some time because I think it's, it's a great calling for us to think about who God calls us all to be.